going to be in 1 John 5, and we're going to read 13 to 17. So this is what God's Word says. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence which we have before Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from Him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he should ask God, and God will give him life to those who commit the sin not leading to death. There's a sin that does lead to death. Now, I don't say that he should make a request for this. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. Will you pray with me? God in heaven, we thank you for your word, which is uh, spoken out to accomplish something. It's not just words scattered in the wind, but you spoke these words by your spirit through the apostle John so that we would read them today and gain from them some confidence, particularly confidence in our prayer lives. And so God, I just pray that your word would accomplish the purpose for which you spoke it, that it would build in us confidence to pray and to believe that you hear and to believe that you're going to answer. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you can be seated. Now, we are talking about confidence today and confidence in prayer. But I wonder, if you were going to characterize your prayer life with just one word, what would that word be? Your prayer life. Is your prayer life deep and sweet? Is it shallow? inconsistent, non-existent? Is it fruitful? Is it ineffective? Is it feeble? Or is it confident? I don't know what word you would use, but I tend to think that most Christians, when they're honest, would say that they wish their prayer life was different than it currently is. They're not satisfied with the state of their prayers. Most of us end up praying half-hearted prayers, hurried prayers that are a far cry from the powerful personal encounters with God that we read about in the Bible. You know, think about Moses on the mountain for 40 days, Elijah in the wilderness. Think about James, the prayers of a righteous man availeth much. You know, these giants of the faith had, man, they had deep, meaningful prayer lives. They spoke to God face to face. They were... But that's not us, is it? Most of us probably aren't there. And as a result, you know, when we kneel down beside our bed or sit in our comfy chair with a cup of coffee and try to pray, you know, we're not always sure that God's hearing our prayers. Much less that He actually intends to answer them. They're like wishes on a birthday cake. You know, you blow the candle, close your eyes, and, hey, I hope this year is better than last year. That's the kind of prayers we pray. And I'm convinced that you and I are living in a day when the kind of prayer lives we've settled for in the past 
are insufficient. Half-hearted prayer, feeble prayer, inconsistent prayer, man, it can't sustain us in 2022. Those kind of prayers aren't going to maintain our faith in God when the world spins out of control. We're not going to fuel our mission to the world. We need something different than what we've settled for. I think our passage this morning shows us exactly what it is we need. It's what God wants to build in you today. God wants you to have confidence in prayer. And I want to try to show you where that confidence comes from. There's only one source. There's only one way. You can pray with confidence when you seek God's will. That's what John told the readers here in 1 John 5. Uh, 1 John 5 is John's summary to the letter he wrote to a church full of people that he loved. I mean, throughout the book, he calls them dear children or my beloved children. He loves these people, but the church was going through some troubles. They had had some doctrinal conflict over their understanding of Christ's incarnation. Some people believed that Jesus was the Son of God who had come in the flesh. Other people didn't believe that's who Jesus was. They had some difficulties agreeing on what the Christian life really looked like and where the lines were in proper and improper boundaries. And as a result of all this conflict, the church had split. John talks about the people who went out from us because they weren't really of us to begin with. And throughout the letter, he's speaking to the people who remain behind whose faith is shaken, and they're wondering if maybe they're the wrong ones, and the people who left were right. And so throughout the letter, what John is trying to do is build them up. He's trying to speak to them comfortingly, beloved children, this is what we know. He's trying to give them confidence and assurance, to give them some certainty in their walk with Christ and before God. And so he comes to chapter 5, and sort of just to reiterate everything that he said up to that point, He tells them exactly why he wrote his letter. He said, I I wrote to you, to those who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know, dot, dot, dot. And he lists five things that he wants the people to know from verse 13 through the end of the chapter. He wants them to know, he said in verse 13, that they have eternal life. He says in verses 18 and 19 that... Christians who've trusted Christ have been born of God. And they've made a clean break with their past life of sin. Verse 20, he wants them to know that the Son of God had come in Jesus and had given them true knowledge of God. And right there in the middle of all these wonderful doctrinal truths about who they are and about who who God is and the, the confidence they should have in what they know, He tells me he also wants them to have the confidence that comes from knowing that God is listening when they pray. That's what John says in verse 14. This is the confidence we have before him, that he hears us. That he hears us. And think about this word confidence. I mean, what is confidence anyway? You look throughout the New Testament, maybe your Bible has a concordance in the back, and you go and you look up in the seas, confidence, and you look at all the places in the Bible where confidence is, because you want to know what God means 
when he talks about confidence. And you'd find it everywhere. Everywhere in the New Testament, confidence shows up again and again and again. It's a Greek word that's sometimes translated boldness. Boldness, confidence. While it's everywhere in Scripture, it's not unique to it. The word itself actually comes from ancient Greek democracy, where a person's confidence referred to their freedom to stand up in the assembly, the ecclesia, which is the same word that the New Testament authors used for church, their freedom to stand up in the assembly and to speak their mind, to speak their peace openly and frankly to the community on an issue. It's their freedom of speech. The moral philosophers in ancient Greece used the same word to describe the atmosphere in a friendship that allows for open, face-to-face communication. We still talk about it like that. We maybe have a hard conversation we need to have with someone, and we sit down and we say, hey, listen, as your friend, I want you to know this. We speak openly and frankly, honestly, because there's an atmosphere of confidence that our relationship's not going to be impacted by what I'm about to say to you. In fact, it is the relationship itself which makes what I'm about to say useful. The Bible takes up this idea of confidence and it applies it to the believer's confidence in their relationship with God. For example, the author of the letter to the Hebrews talks about our confidence with God over and over. He says in chapter 4 that because we have a high priest who sympathizes with us in our weakness, we can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. He says in chapter 10 that we have confidence to enter the holy place. And by that, he's not talking about the earthly holy place. He says that's just a shadow and a picture of the real thing. God's heavenly throne room. And so he says we have confidence to enter the holy place, to God's throne room, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. Paul says in Ephesians 3 that in Christ we have boldness and confident access to God by faith. Everywhere. Christians of all people ought to have some confidence. Because of what Christ has done for them, they can walk right into the throne room of God. Confidently. Boldly. Of course, John seems particularly concerned with confidence before God. And he he revisits the theme over and over again. Although he's not as concerned about our confidence now before God there. He's concerned about the confidence we're going to have when God leaves there and comes back here. And so in chapter 2 he says, Little children, abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink back away from him in shame at his coming. He says in chapter 3, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. You getting this? Confidence is a big deal. He says in chapter 4, we've come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. Do you know that? Have you come to know and believe the love God has for you? I hope so. Because he says God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. And by this, love is perfected. By abiding in God, Love is perfected so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. So what is confidence? 
It's a Christian's boldness to approach God by the blood of Jesus and freely to speak to Him about our needs. That's the confidence John is trying to build into his readers. That Christ has lived a sinless life, died a sacrificial death, and because of that has opened a way for you to enter into God's throne room. And when you get there, He's waiting with open ear to hear what you say. This is the confidence we have before Him that He hears us. That is the confidence John's talking about. He says, God is listening. So pray with confidence. And of course, we've seen. This isn't the kind of confidence you and I are used to. The self-confidence, which is an internal like, sense of assertiveness. He's confident. You know, he gets his way. He knows what he wants. That's not what it is. Because we come before God humbly by Christ. It's not self-confidence or an assertion of our own power or authority. And what's crazy to me is this confidence in prayer, particularly, isn't even rooted in our sincerity when we pray or in the size and power of our faith. But John says that we should be confident when we pray because God is listening to us. And, of course, there's that little middle phrase. If we ask anything according to His will. Confidence in prayer that John's talking about is anchored not to our sincerity or to our perfection or character or to our faith or anything like that. It's anchored in God's commitment to fulfill His sovereign plan. That, that's where our confidence in prayer comes from. The belief deep inside that God has a plan and when I'm praying consistent with His plan, He hears me and He answers that's what he's talking about, nestled in this little conditional statement, this if-then statement. I hope you got your Bible open. I keep looking up at the screen like it's going to magically appear, but it's not. So just look at your Bible with me. Uh, verse 14. This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. That is a conditional statement. An if and a then. If we pray anything according to his will, then he hears us. And that is a, a airtight, rock-solid promise. Do you hear it? If we pray anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that if he hears us, we know that we have whatever we have asked from him. This is a promise of God that when we pray according to God's will, we can be confident that He's going to hear us and answer. What a needed correction that is for my prayer life. <laughs> One commentator put it like this. He said, prayer isn't a convenient device for imposing our will upon God or of bending His will to our will. Like you're going to wrestle with Him like Jacob. You know, hey God, I'm praying here, so you better do what I ask. Now he says, instead, prayer is the prescribed way of subordinating our will to his. It's by prayer that we seek God's will, that we embrace God's will, and that we align ourselves with God's will. That's what prayer is all about. 
taking all the needs and concerns that we've got in our life and bringing them to God and saying, okay, God, what are you going to make of this mess? That's it. But that raises the question, what is God's will? What is it? I mean, anybody who's been a Christian for a long time has discovered that question pops up at the most inopportune times. You've got a crazy decision to make, and you really like, you know what decision you want to make, but because you're a Christian and trying to live your life for Jesus, you ask him, okay, Lord, what's your will for me here? Should I take this job or not? Should I buy this house? Should I sell my house? Should I buy this car? And should I marry or date this person? Should I go to college? Should I go to this college or that college? We, you know, we're trying to subordinate all the things that we've got in our lives to what God wants. What is your will for me? And we're right to do that. We know in the back of our minds that God has a plan for each of us. You know, God has a wonderful plan for your life. David prays in Psalm 139, Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not even one of them. Before you and I were even born, God knew how our lives were going to play out. Isn't that amazing? So it's, it's right when we come to these turning points in life that we ask Him, Okay, God, which direction should I go? What is your will for me? most dangerous place to be, somebody said, was outside the will of God. Right? So we don't want to end up there. We want to be right where He wants us to be. Nothing happens in our lives by accident. The God who created us and is overseeing and orchestrating all the events of our world is fulfilling His sovereign will in us, through us, around us, in ways that you and I can't even comprehend sometimes, in, in painful ways. Right? Isaiah 55 my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. So God's will is, is oftentimes hidden from us. And, you know, it's sometimes strange to see how it all plays out. But at the end of the day, the Bible is clear that God has a will. It's his eternal purpose to glorify himself by saving sinners through his son, Jesus. You want to know what makes God tick? What is God's purpose? What's his mission statement? That's it. To glorify himself by saving sinners through the life, death, resurrection of his son Jesus. That's God's will. That's his plan. And, and all of us find our identity and purpose and sense of place and rootedness within this grand plan. Every person who ever existed exists for that reason, to glorify God. And so how we find our lives fitting in makes all the difference. How we pray about our lives makes all the difference. And when you know that this is God's will, you know how to pray. You pray for that. That God's eternal purpose to glorify Himself by saving sinners through His Son Jesus would be fulfilled in you and by you and through you. That's the goal. We're not the center of the universe. And my parents had to tell me that when I was growing up so many times. Brad, you, the world does not revolve around you. Occasionally, my wife has to tell me that, you know? But man, my prayer life would make you think that it does. My prayer life revolves around me. 
about my concerns, about my desires, about my hopes and my dreams, my aspirations, my family. But I'm not the center of the universe. It doesn't matter how many times I try to compel my family to make me the center of the universe or how I try to use my platform as a preacher to make me the center of everything. I'm not. And God can quickly remind you of that, can he? Jesus is the center of the universe. Him. And so our prayer lives ought to make him the center of our world and universe. And one theologian, pastor, who's probably more associated with God's sovereignty than anybody else, John Calvin said that God has given us a twofold remedy to keep us on track in praying for God's will. Two things God does to keep us on track in praying His will. Number one, He reveals His will to us in the Bible. And number two, He guides us day by day by His Spirit. And so if you want to pray with confidence, you got to seek God's will. And you seek God's will in the scriptures. For example, John says, hey, write these things to you so that you may know that God hears you when he prays. And if he hears you when he prays, then you're going to get what you ask when you pray according to his will. And he gives an example. For example... If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he should ask God, and God will give him life. Now, we're not going to get into what a sin leading to death is and what it isn't, but I'll give you the Cliff Notes version of what I think he means. There are some sins that people can commit that show that they are so far turned against God that there's no hope for their repentance. We're going to see it in a few weeks um, in the Gospel of Mark when a person blasphemes the Holy Spirit. Right? Jesus says this is a sin that can't be forgiven. I think these are the same kind of categories of sin that John's talking about. It's when a person hardens themselves so completely to God that they have cut off any hope of turning back again. So John's saying, hey, you know who those people are. It's better to put them out of the church, turn them over to Satan for the salvation of their souls. right? But he said there are some people, some Christians who wander and who slip into sinful patterns of behavior. And you need to pray for those people because it's God's will that those people be restored back, right? Uh, what Psalm 23 says, and we sang earlier, He leads me in the paths of righteousness. His rod, His staff, they comfort me. When I wander, He brings me back. That is John's suggestion, commandment, instruction, that when they see Christians sinning, they should pray for them. Because it's God's will that they would be restored. And when they pray for them to be restored, God hears those prayers and he answers them. In Romans 8.29, we read that God's will is to conform every Christian to the image of Jesus. Perfectly conforming them to his example and to his character. And so when we pray that God would conform us to Jesus' image, he hears that prayer and he answers it. 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul says in verse 3, This is the will of God, your sanctification. So when we pray to be sanctified, God hears that prayer and answers it. Paul, Peter says in 2 Peter 3 that it's not God's desire that anyone should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so when we pray for God to save lost people, He hears that prayer 
and he answers it. That's the way God works. When we pray anything according to his will, he hears us, and we know if we, he hears us, we have what we have asked from him. So do you see that when we pray for God to fulfill his sovereign will in our lives and world, he can't help but answer our requests? That's where you get confidence. How can you align your prayer life with what God is intending to do in the world? That's a big question. You know, as, as God's children, we know that we have freedom to confidently walk into the throne room of God and find Him waiting and ask from Him anything. You know, you can just lay everything at His feet. Ask Him for anything. You have freedom to do that. But you have confidence that He's going to hear you and answer you when you pray according to His will. When your prayers line up with His intentions and with His plans. In those cases, you're not imposing on him, not bothering him. You're, you're just conforming your desires to his. You're saying to him, Father, I want in my life and in my world what you want in my life and world. Those requests aren't burdensome or bothersome. They're, they're the actual means that he is going to use to carry out the purpose that he's established before time began. He's waiting on you to pray. Some of the stuff's going to happen in your life. It's not going to happen until you ask for it. And that's God's plan. That's why James says, you have not because you ask not. Isn't that crazy? Do you know what riches are available to you? Do you know what God wants to pour out on you? So ask Him confidently. It's kind of like when my kids ask to watch TV. And there are certain shows that my kids like, that I love. Like there's this show from Australia called Bluey. And man, I love that show, Bluey. It is so hilarious. I think I, th I just crack up every time I watch it. feel sorry for that dad and mom. And I've been right there with them. Uh, there are others, of course. But then there are these other shows and movies that my kids like that I just really don't like. They're not my cup of tea, and it gives them a lot of joy to watch them, but uh, not me. And I tune it out and, you know, sit around and play chess on my phone or something. But, hey, I'm not watching that. All right. And whether or not I let my kids watch those shows really depends on the kind of mood I'm in. You know, if it's been a good day and we've had an easy afternoon, I'm more amenable to that request. I'm human. I'm not perfect. I don't overflow with steadfast love and mercy, you know. I keep a record of wrong sometimes. And uh, so, you know, that's how it happens. But I can guarantee you that if my kids came to me one day, Saturday afternoon, said, hey, Dad, can we watch the Bama game? Do you know they, they're not going to have to wonder what my answer is going to be? No doubt. I'm already planning to watch that game. So, yeah, of course we can watch that game, guys. But I'll tell you what. The fact that they asked me to watch the Bama game or to watch baseball, the fact that they want to do what I want to do, what I was going to do anyway, makes my heart explode with joy. But here are my kids, the people I love more than anybody else on the face of the earth, Wanting what I want. 
Brothers and sisters, that's exactly how it is when you pray for God's will to be done in our world. He's going to do it anyway. He's going to glorify Himself one way or the other. He's going to lift up the name of Jesus and draw all men to Himself. The question is, where are you at in that? And how do your prayers fit in? You can pray with confidence when you seek God's will. Here's what I think the transformation would look like. A person who gets this in their heart and says, in 2022, I'm going to make Jesus the center of my prayer life and I'm going to pray for God's will to be done in my world. They'd say, enough of the prayers. God, I wish my kids would act right. And more, Lord, you've told me to bring my kids up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So take my imperfect inconsistent efforts and work it into their hearts for your glory. And say enough of those prayers. Man, I wish I didn't fight with my wife so much. And more, God, you've told me to love my wife like Christ loved the church. Help me do that. Say enough of those prayers. Hey, I wish more people came to church. More, God. Would you bring your church back to their first love so that their heart for you overflows onto an unbelieving world? Enough of those prayers. Save our country. You know it. More of those, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Enough of those, give me the desires of my heart. More of those, nevertheless, not what I will, but your will be done. That's a prayer life conformed and defined by Jesus and what he's about. It's a prayer life built with confidence. And they're the prayers that our church needs to learn how to pray. More than anything else we need, we need to learn how to pray that God's will would be done in us. And so there are three prayers that I think have to be in our daily rotation. And as we close, I want to give them to you and ask you as we enter this prayer week to commit to pray in these three prayers every day this week. They're simple. You can fill in the blanks in your bulletin if you'd like. These are prayers that I believe are consistent with God's will. They are prayers that He can't help but answer. And so here they are. Number one, make me more like Jesus. Today, God, make me more like Jesus. That's his plan for you, that you'd be conformed into the image of Christ. That's his will. Can't argue it. It's his plan for you. He's going to present you to himself without spot or blemish. So pray it. Make me more like Jesus. Pray it and hold on. Because he will. Number two, save the lost. That's his plan. We wouldn't be here as a church if it wasn't his plan. He's left us here to make disciples of all nations. He said this gospel will be preached until the ends of the earth, and then the end will come. So we're here because there are some people who are going to be with us in heaven, and they don't know it yet. So we've got to pray, God, save lost people. You can put names to it. 
You know them. Reading a book this week by Leonard Ravenhill, a book of sermons written in the 60s. I was telling Mike about it before. I've been trying to fill my soul up to preach on prayer. And he says that every unconverted neighbor will condemn us on the day of judgment. Wow. So pray, save the lost, and put a name to it. You know them. Neighbors, friends, children, aunts, uncles, grandparents. Pray. Save lost people. It's His will. He'll do it. And lastly, build your church. And y'all know what, when Jesus said that, build your church, He wasn't talking about, he's, He said He's going to build His church. He didn't mean just Central Baptist Church. The kingdom of God is far larger than any one local congregation. And so pray that God would build His church. That every healthy, Bible-believing church in Luling would explode as new people move to our community. Not just ours. That every house of false teaching would die. Pray that he'd build his church here in Texas, around the world. Pray that he would raise up leaders to guide our church into the future. Men who love Jesus and love the Bible more than they love anything else and are willing to shepherd our church. Pray for that. Pray for deacons who will serve selflessly. Pray for women who are going to show the church what it means to love. Pray that he would build his church because it's his plan. And he's going to do it. So pray with confidence as you seek his will. Will you commit to those three prayers? Okay, let's pray for him now.